0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to Research Unplugged. Glad to see some new faces here today. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the series before we get started. My name is Emily Rollins, and I'm the coordinator of Research Unplugged and we are an outreach initiative of the Office of the Senior Vice President for Research here at Penn State and we're currently in I believe our seventh season. We run through the fall and spring of each year And the concept is to create an informal and casual atmosphere, such as this space, to discuss research with the experts. So that's what we do every week, Wednesday afternoons here in the theater. Um, We have one more event this season on a Wednesday afternoon, as well as our special event next Monday night, which is a collaboration with WPSU, and it's being held in the Outreach Building, which is at Penn State's Innovation Park off of... 322? Yeah, Um, and and you'll see the satellite dishes at the outreach building and you can park in the lot. And it starts at 7. I'd recommend getting there about 645. The topic is Pennsylvania's plain people, and we'll be be discussing the Amish, Mennonite, and Old Brethren cultures. Um, One more thing I want to say about today, for those of you who've been here, you'll notice I have a microphone, a little different than normal. Um, We are recording today for CNET. And this discussion will be aired next week on Channel 98, um, starting on Wednesday at 8 PM. And so I'm going to try to run the mic for the question portion of the event. So if you could just kind of signal to me, wave your hand, and I'll get it to you. Um, It won't project your voice, but it will give them clear audio for the broadcast. So I'll now turn it over to my intern, Mike, and he'll introduce today's host.
1: Hello folks, my name is Michael Seiden. Today's host, Dr. Eddie Holmes, is a professor of biology at Penn State University. He has studied viruses for 15 years. His interest in the subject matter was sparked while in San Francisco during 1991 where he witnessed the devastation of the AIDS epidemic firsthand. Since then he's mapped the evolution of HIV. He was the first to map the evolution of the virus in a single patient and has written an ex- extensively cited works on the matter. His research, uh, Dr. Holmes's research interests include the ecology of infectious diseases, uh, virology, and evolutionary genetics. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll help me introduce today's today's host, Dr. Eddie Holmes.
2: Thank you, Emily, thank you, Mike. I'm just gonna (coughs) turn my slide projector on quickly. Okay so although this series is, is entitled unplugged i 'm one of those people that can 't speak without slides, okay, so I apologize um, what i want to do today is just introduce you to the sort of work that i that I do, and um, this is not a subject that would have been really done thirty years ago. so if we can just take the clock back to sort of the 60s and 70s the general view then was that we had conquered infectious diseases, so things caused by bacteria, viruses, parasites were on the way out, we we conquered them and that was largely because of things like um, antibiotics and vaccination and in fact in in the 1970s the the US Surgeon General declared that we'd won the war on infectious diseases and we had in fact um, for example greatly reduced the incidence of tuberculosis in the west and we'd also re- um, we thought we'd reduced malaria in many parts of the world. So the, this slide over here is, is a, a malaria control poster. And this is actually the malaria parasite killing a red blood cell. Sadly, that, was m- that, that view that we conquer diseases was, was very misplaced. Um, firstly, that was very, very much a Western view of, of, the, of, of the world. In the, in the US, in Europe, we may have reduced the, the frequency of disease. But elsewhere, uh, particularly developing countries in Africa, Asia, they were still very, very common. Also, and this is really the theme of my talk, in the the, the last 30 years, so since the 70s, there's been a real rise in the number of diseases, new infectious diseases infecting human populations, okay? For example, sorry, this is very small, but this is now a map of TB, tuberculosis incidence, globally a a few years ago, and it's basically skyrocketed. So TB, which which we thought we'd um, we'd eradicated almost, has really come back absolutely dramatic levels, particularly, very small, I'm sorry, Africa and Asia, okay? So, and then, so taking that into, in, into kind of a bigger picture, there's an idea then that diseases are called, they're emerging, so there's, there's a whole new scientific area called the study of emerging diseases, and that's what fo- my work focuses on, what I'll discuss today. Now, that, that, so, the disease that really changed our mind, that convinced us that, we, in fact, infections were on the way back was hiv aids now very briefly what happened was um, in the early 1980s we discovered that this very strange virus that reduced people's immune system so that they couldn't then protect themselves against normal pathogens in the populations like tb and that um and that that eventually killed them and since we discovered the virus in in 1983 um, it has spread to a- absolutely astronomical levels. This is, this is um, so every year, the United Nations put up a, a, a global picture of the AIDS epidemic. This is last year's figures. This year's are due out uh, in about a month or so. And I suspect they'll be very similar, but you can see that the, the numbers are just terrible. So at the moment, so last year, there were 40.3 million people living with the virus, okay, infected with the virus. That doesn't include those that have died already. And you can see that the vast majority of those, sorry if you can read this, are in sub-Saharan Africa, so South Africa. Almost 26 million people in that part of the world have HIV infection, okay? have the virus that causes AIDS. If you, if you do the mathematics, it turns out that in 2005, there were almost 5 million inf- infections in that year, which equates to about 14,000 new infections each day. So this is a terrible, terrible thing. And As, as you know, there is yet no vaccine, there are drugs that work well they, you, you can control the virus you can't eradicate it they, they, they work well but they're so expensive that they're not going to be a good solution for the epidemic in africa i would say so hiv appear, appeared 25 30 years ago and it really changed our mindset it made us realize that we hadn't these infections that they were either always there or new ones were appearing and hiv as i discussed in a second was a completely novel thing so a little bit more detail then that's that's a kind of global picture again we, and I can't emphasize enough how, how bad the situation is in sub Saharan Africa. This is some figures from a few years ago. There's a little map of Africa on, on the right there. The darker the color, the higher the, 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 the number of, the more common the virus is in the populations. So this, is, this, is, this is what's called incidence data. And these, these numbers here are the percentage of adults between 49 and sorry 15 and 50 essentially they're infected with HIV and if you can see that's that kind of dark red color if you can see that so basically in sub Saharan Africa South Africa Malawi Botswana Zimbabwe we are talking about maybe 25 to 40 percent of adults infected with HIV which is an incredible number and they will die okay because the, the drugs don't aren't really available and they don't cure and there's no vaccine so that's going to kind a of swathe through the population of Africa. Terrible thing. So, that's happened. Now what my research is really focused on is trying to understand where this virus comes from, why it's spread through populations and potentially how can we control it. And the way I do my work, this is the only technical slide, I apologise, I, I just need to show you this very quickly. The way I do my work is to, is to sample viruses from um, different people, from different animals sequence their, their genome, it's an RNA molecule, like DNA, sequence them, their genome, and then reconstruct their kind of family history and evolutionary tree. So this is a tree, it's an evolutionary tree of HIV, okay? So if you can see, and it's, it's just like a, a, a kind of family tree or, or a pedigree, so the, the short branches here, these are things that are very closely related, and the deep branches are things that are less closely related, it's very simple. Now, what this tree means? This, so this is a tree, a phylogeny, a history, a history of viruses like HIV from humans and other animal species. And it turns out this, this is really this is kind of sets my work into context. It turns out that HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, and most RNA viral inf- most viral infections, have relatives in other animal species. So HIV, it turns out that there are two kind of strains, two different types of HIV. HIV one, HIV two. HIV one is the most common one, the one that's really g- very C- common in southern africa and that's very closely related to a virus found in chimpanzees okay hv2 is less common really found in west africa still gives you aids that virus is related to a species a monkey called the sooty mangabey so human viruses have relatives in other animal species and that is almost universal and what that means is somehow the virus has jumped from an animal into a human Okay, and that, and so what? What the big question that I ask in in my kind of research is: How does that happen? How does a chimpanzee virus spread in a human? How does it get into humans, and how does it spread? Okay, what controls whether it can spread or not? So that's that's kind of the essence of my my research. Now, for HIVs, we know, using lots of work, we know that HIV one comes from chimpanzees. We know that um, HIV two comes from other species of monkey lives in Africa. How did how did it get from those animals into humans? And the answer is changing ecology. So what's happened in Africa in the last sort of 40, 50 years has been a very widespread deforestation for logging. So they're cutting forests down to get logs. That has meant that people have have moved further into the kind of forest habitat um, than they ever did before. And they're starting to hunt monkeys. Now, if you go to West Africa, you find markets where they sell an uh, an amazing array of uh, um, exotic animals for, for food. So you can't see it very well, I apologize, but these are basically monkey carcasses on sale in a market in Cameroon. Isn't the monkey on sale? And this is a chimpanzee in some in a in a this, these, are, these are protected animals. This this is a chimpanzee in a in a poacher's sack that will then be taken to a market and sold for meat. So so there's there's a there are big trade in what's called bush meat, animal meat, primate meat, particularly a monkey meat that's being sold for consumption in West Africa. Amazingly this stuff's also, this meat's also being imported illegally to many countries in the West like the US and the UK. Now <laughs> if you look in these animals here they are full of viruses Okay, they are full of viruses that are just very very closely related to HIV like the one in chimpanzee, the one in mangabees. And so you can imagine very quite easily that, that you're you, 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 buy, you buy a carcass of a monkey you're preparing the meat, you cut yourself and you're, you know, there's blood from the, the carcass that you're preparing, and that gets into your wound, and you get infected. And that's almost certainly what happened. Okay? But the main, the main cause is, is, is our change in ecology, how we've encroached on the forest environment for logging, exposed ourselves these, uh, to these, these animals. Um, a new kind of ec- ecology has grown up, and that increased exposure to other animals has allowed their viruses to jump into us. So that's HIV, and that really got the whole idea. Like I say, that was a real spur to us that we hadn't conquered infectious diseases. Since HIV has come along, uh, since HIV appeared, there's been a whole uh, set of other viruses that work, um, that are very, very similar, that that are newly appeared in humans. So again, emerging means means diseases, particularly viruses, that that have recently appeared in, in humans. Now, the, 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 this word here, zoonoses, is, all that means is that, that, that HIV and many other viruses have their, their, their ancestry in animal species, in other words, zoo, okay? So most of these emerging viruses, I'm going to discuss in a second, come from other animal species. So for example, since HIV has appeared, we've also had um, West Nile. So West Nile is something you get in Pennsylvania. There's a little map of the US from, from a few years ago showing the different the states that had West Nile either in birds, or in humans. So West Nile is a bird virus and it's passed on by mosquitoes in humans. So West Nile is a zoonosis, an animal virus that's jumped into humans. That's a recent thing in the US. So West Nile is one. Another would be Nipah. So Nipah is an, another virus that's found in, in, um, in, in Southeast Asia and it's, it's natural reservoir. It's, sorry, it's hard to see. is a bat, a fruit bat. So then, then, then a natural zoonotic reservoir, the animal that harbours it. And it jumped from bats into pigs and it really devastated pigs really badly, massive colour pigs, and then pigs into humans. Okay, so that's another emerging virus, again, that comes from animal species, they nearly always do. And finally, I have one more, I think it's going to work. Uh, if you know your Spanish, it's not a very good name, Sinombre. Okay, so Sinombre is a virus found in the US, in the Four Corners region of the southwest US. And Sinombre is actually a virus, very na- very, it gives a very nasty respiratory disease, a uh, nasty virus that comes from deer mice. Okay, So, in the last 30 years, HIV uh, and a number of other viruses from animals have jumped into humans and spread. And again, my, my, my research is basically trying to understand how does that happen? What determines why Nipah can spread or West Nile can spread? One more quick example of what I mean, and the, one that, the most recent one that we, uh, well actually, two more examples. The first one is one that we all, we all knew about a couple of years ago, and that's SARS. Okay, and again, it's exactly the same story. So SARS appeared in the end of 2002, start of 2003. It appeared, first of all, in, in China and um, Hong Kong, and then spread rapidly to various countries in, in, around the world. Not so much in the US, a few, a few, a bit more in Canada, some in Germany. And it affected about 8,000 people. And of those 8,000, about 800 died. And it, then it kind of burnt itself away. And you remember, the, remember a few, it it's only a few years ago, you remember, I'm sure you remember the scenes of people wearing face masks to try and... Try and prevent SARS transmission. So, a completely novel pathogen appeared just a few years ago. Where'd it come from? Again, it's a zoonosis. It comes from an animal. So, there's there's the virus. It's called a coronavirus. A very common virus. This particular coronavirus, originally we thought it came from an animal called a civet. A civets like a like a. Um, a kind of cat-like animal that lives i'm not sure they have in the us like, like these things that lives um, in, in asia and um we thought originally the civet was the animal that was a host and people in asia eat civets for, um, <coughs> for uh, various times but then it turns out in fact that civets are not the real host not the real animal species that it comes from that a, a wider survey has now found it to be bats particularly horseshoe bats so these animals like bats, like civics, carry these viruses. They're there, they're part of their, app, they're their nature. And as we've changed our interaction with animals, like we're eating civics or, or eating bushmeat, that, that has meant we're more exposed to these pathogens and we're getting infected. The last one is the one that uh, has caused most concern recently and that's avian influenza, H5N1. And I'm sure we'll discuss that more as, as the, the, <coughs> the discussion proceeds. Um, essentially, it started, um, well actually this virus, this particular strain of H5, in, of, of, of influenza virus, has been around since about 1959, which people don't really realise. So it's actually older than people think. But since 97, it has caused very large-scale mortality in birds, and occasionally it's gone into humans. Okay? So it's so influenza virus, and, and again, another RNA virus, and, it com- and sorry, I should say it comes from birds. So again, it's a zoonotic infection. And it turns out for influenza virus, the natural hosts are water birds, like ducks ducks and shorebirds and the ducks then give it to chickens and the chickens can give it to us okay so again another zoonotic disease so since 97 this virus has become has been killing uh, killing chickens and other other poultry in quite high numbers and occasionally it's jumped into humans and this is uh, sorry it's very small but essentially since 2003 it kind of reappeared in 2003 in humans and then it's, and it's slowly spread around birds around the world in poultry species, and it's causing human infections in more, this case of humans by year by more, in more and more countries. It's slowly appearing. The good news and we, again, we'll discuss this more later on, I guess The good news is it hasn't really got going in humans, okay? So HIV is an animal infection that's really takes, so if I, if I go back a slide, I apologize. Um, HIV is, is an infection that's got going in humans. West Nile has got going, has, has, it has got going a little bit in humans. Sinombre Nombre kind of came and went away. Nipah kind of came and went away. SARS came and went away, and even um, influenza hasn't really got going yet. So most times when we get these new infections, they burn themselves out. Okay? Occasionally they get going, like HIV. So again. Well, my, my big question is why are some successful? Why is HIV so good? Why is it such a human pathogen? Yet yeah, even influenza in humans hasn't really got going. It only affects people sporadically. It hasn't caused a big pandemic yet. Will it? I, we can discuss it later on. So the future, very briefly, for the future. Um, so I, I desc- I, I've, I've, I've described that, that we in the last 30 years we've had lots of new infections, and that's going to happen again. I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about this. We will get many more. Emerging diseases in the future—it it's, it's, must happen. The reason why, as I said, is because of our changing ecology. Okay, so now, as a species, we, we, we're involved in, in wide-scale deforestation. This is the Amazon basin in, in Brazil—this is forests clear, and they're clearing an enormous amount of forest every single day. By being in the forest, we're exposing ourselves to animals that carry viruses and bacteria that will then get into us. It must happen. Okay, so it's changing forests, deforestation is a big problem. Oops. also there is going to be things like changing land use, so you can see it very well here this is some land that's become, th- that they've, they've changed the agricultural practice on that land in the last few years and that process, the way we, we interact with, with the land and nature is going to expose ourselves to more pathogens and they will jump into humans poverty, war, this is Darfur in Sudan, and there's a, a global crisis right now this kind of situation is of poor people with no food Mass congregations, political unrest—that is a breeding ground for infectious diseases. That's exactly the kind of environment you need for a new virus, a new or a new bacterium, can get going, spread, and get itself in humans. So, poverty, political unrest, again, is a major reason why we're getting these new infections. Um, finally, I think probably the most re- biggest reason of all: the growth of mega cities, urbanisation. This is Shanghai in China. The world's biggest city, it doesn't have to be Shanghai, it could be many big cities. Having a mass of people together in one small place, really, uh, where where, where, where you can't survey what's going on very well, that must allow pathogens to really get going in humans. So, the growth of of mega cities, people (coughs) being real close confines, is exactly what you want if you're a virus you want to spread. So, all those things, and of course, global travel as well, that we can move very quickly around the, around, the, around the world today, all those things put together means that diseases like HIV, SARS, avian influenza will occur more frequently in the future. There's no doubt about that, I and mean, we should just <laughs> to accept that. So, again, that, so, um, um, what my research is really about is just trying to understand how that, that emergence process going from animal to human really takes place. I think I'll stop there, and we can, we can discuss it more.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm curious. In your opening comments, you stated that the uh, cost of making the medicine for HIV and other things are yeah. so expensive. Do you think that's more of a business profit motive uh, behind that, or is it, I mean, why is the stuff so expensive to make? And there's real reason to come up, or I mean, is it that the demand is so great, so the cost can be? Is it one of those deals?
2: Yeah, I so th- mm, yeah. I should I I should say something very political here. You're absolutely right. So. The average health... So, OK, in, in the West, m- my understanding is that if you want to treat someone for an antiviral drug f- for HIV, to give them, give them drugs for HIV infection, AIDS, in the US today, that may be five to $10,000 per year of drug treatment. OK? In, in Sub-Saharan Africa, the, um, the, the health budget per person per year is $3. So they just don't work. There's no way you can give that number of people that number of antivirals. You're absolutely right that, that the government, that the, the governments of the countries involved, and the drug companies could greatly reduce the cost of those antivirals. Absolutely, and that would work. And that's definitely happening now. In South Africa, they're, they're going to use generic antiviral drugs to control HIV. I, I'm not a business person. I don't know how much it costs to make a vaccine or to make a drug. Okay, there's no, there's no HIV vaccine, I should say, um, but. They could massively reduce the, the cost of that. I'm sure that's correct. If it were me, if, if you gave me $10 billion and you said, how would you conquer HIV AIDS? I wouldn't invest it personally in, in vaccines and drugs. I'd invest it in education, condom, um, giving out free condoms, and the control of other diseases, other infections that allow the virus to spread more quickly. I think it's more cost-effective, personally. Um, and, you, for example, Uganda had a very bad HIV epidemic in, in the early 90s, late 80s, and they've controlled it with education and, and condom availability. Antivirals, are they work, but they're very expensive, and they, ne- they you never cure it, okay? It's always there somewhere. So, so it's, all these things, there's always a political, economic element to it. And it's hard to kind of get around that to the science sometimes. Sorry, I'll get you.
1: I'm curious about a balance or trade-off or whatever between an evolving virus
2: versus picking up a what looks like an evolved form of it yeah. from another animal. Right. What is your take on that? Okay, <laughs> Crikey, that's a good question. Um, so one, that, I guess that the, the biggest question that I'm going to kind of I'm going to sort of answer your question, but kind of go a little way as well. Um, the big thing because it's a hard question to answer, one of the well, the main question that I address in my research is why some viruses work in humans and others don't. Okay, so why it's so a Nipah I mentioned in Malaysia that destroyed pigs, got into humans. But each human infection came from an animal. There was no human-to-human transmission. So why was it that case? And why was it that HIV is now a human pathogen? OK, so why the difference? Why are some good and some not? Now the answer is we don't know the answer to that question. There are a few things that appear to be going on. One is the closer the species you get the virus from, the more likely it's going to work in you. So for example, HIV-1 comes from chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are very closely to humans, we share almost all our DNA with them. The cells of human are like the cells of a chimpanzee. So a virus that works in a chimpanzee is going to work in a human. Okay? Pigs are a bit further away, so it's, it's a, a virus that works in pig cells is less likely to work in humans, it can still happen. Okay? Um, if you go back even further, um, plants, if you, if, you, if you go to, to any, let's go to Panera next door, I'm not going to pick on Panera restaurant, but if you go to any restaurant you want in, Penns, in State College, you get a salad I bet you, if you test that salad for viruses, you will find RNA viruses. That's not, that's not because they're not clean at all. It's because they're always there in nature. And they don't cause human disease. Because, because human cells are very different from plant cells. So the first rule of, I think we can find is that the closer the reservoir species is, the more likely it's going to work in humans. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that most emerging viruses tend to come from species that live in big, aggregations. So if you look at uh, uh, as a bi- the big list of them, I've, I've given a few there, the, 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 the classic donor species we get bugs from are rodents, bats and birds Okay, because they tend to live in very big population sizes. I mean, there's lots and lots of rodents living a bit, and, and, and the, the more you are, the bigger your population sizes, the more you have chance of y- the virus passing itself on and keeping it going. We don't get things that live very, in very sparse populations because they're less likely to carry bugs. So it's not quite an answer to your question, but it's, <laughs> it's vaguely related, I think. Sorry.
1: For me? Oh, OK. Can we conclude that vegetarians are less likely to contract the virus?
2: you get it from eating the food? Yeah, so uh, that's a very interesting question. So I'm I. I don't know a single case of a plant virus infecting a human. It doesn't happen. Okay? So if you only eat plant matter, by definition, you are not going to get a plant viral infection. However, however, the HIV meat eating... My story of that someone preparing meat and eating it and then getting infected, that happened once. Okay? Then it's passed on sexually or in blood transfusion networks or whatever. So um, the answer to your, the broad question, answer to your question is absolutely not. Most infections we get, most viral infections we get now are not due to consumption. They're, either res- they're, they're respiratory, they're sexual, they're, they're vector-borne or mosquito-borne. They're not because they're, you're eating something. In the past, when the virus first emerged, consuming food, animal food may have got it going. But now, then they're, they're very rarely passed on like that. So I don't, I don't think that's an advert for being a vegetarian. Sorry, this person here, then we'll go here.
1: Do you see any type of selectional pressures um, against these emerging viruses in the human population? For example, the sickle cell phenotype uh, against malaria?
2: Yeah, okay, so... um, The the viruses are under so when when a virus first gets going, when a new disease first gets going in a human, it's got a very difficult balance to, to evolve to, okay? it needs to infect new people to keep itself going. But it's also going to kill those people quite often. So it turns out the ones that don't get going often um, kill people too quickly. For example, Ebola, a very famous virus in West Africa, very high mortality rate. It basically kills people more rapidly than it transmits. So the first selection pressure on the virus is to evolve transmission. That's that's the first thing you've got to do without, with, with, and, and the, you can't kill the host too rapidly, otherwise you select against yourself, okay? It's a kind of complex balance. Avian influenza in humans now is a, is a fantastically serious infection. If you get H5N1 influenza, the virus replicates, replicates in your body absolutely amazingly high levels, but it replicates in the wrong part of your body. So what if you're a flu virus, you want to replicate up here, okay? You want to infect mucosal cells in your upper respiratory tract. So if I cough on you like that, you put a in the front there, you're going to get my influenza viruses. Avian influenza replicates t- too far down the respiratory tract. So if you cough, you're really ill, you're not going to pass the virus on. So the first selection pressure is for transmission, it's to evolve transmission. But that's hard, that's actually very hard to evolve. Because you can't, because unless you're, it's this kind of technical thing, unless you're transmitting already, you can't select for transmission. Okay, it's a kind of complicated evolutionary hole you're stuck in. So, so the first selection pressure is transmission, if, and if you can succeed in doing that, then you may cause a global pandemic. If you can't do that, then you're just going to get what we call a spillover. You'll come from an animal, cause disease in that, in that single person, and then die out, okay? So again, H5N1 flu is a very, very good example. It's a very successful in a single individual. It causes a very, very high uh, amount, amount of virus in your body, that's why you die. But, it's a, but in evolutionary terms, it's a, it's a dead end because it doesn't, it hasn't evolved transmission. It infects you too low down in your respiratory tract. There's one here. Could you comment on
1: the problems of creating uh, vaccines? In, generically,
2: but, uh, uh, sort of, but okay. particularly
1: with these uh, emerging viruses. Okay,
2: so it's a great question. So that va- okay. Th- th- there, there are two problems with, vac- with vaccine production. One, um, you need to make the vaccine safe. Okay, so, so when so so the best the best vaccine you can have is the bug itself. Okay, so if you're infected with say measles, you get very you get lifelong protection against measles because what you've done you've been exposed to all the measles virus the entire its the entire protein structure. A vaccine can never be that good almost because you're only giving a bit. Of the, of, of the virus as, as a stimulant. So what a vaccine is normally is a dead virus or a, or a, a, um, a bit of a virus that, that allows you to express an a immune response against it. The trade-off is this. The best vaccines are the ones that are most like the real bug itself, but they're the most dangerous because they're more likely to revert to being a real bug itself, okay? So for example, yellow fever vaccine. Yellow fever is a very common disease. It's a very good vaccine against yellow fever but it has been known to cause epidemics itself because it reverts. It, it evolves back, very rarely I should say, don't panic, you should take it, it, it evolves back. It evolves back sometimes into, into an infectious thing. The same with polio. Very, polio is a great, fantastic vaccine. Very, very occasionally it can revert into an infectious thing because it's, it's like that, okay? So that's the problem. Now, for HIV, there's no way you're gonna have an use an infectious virus as a vaccine. There's just no way. This is not gonna happen. So you, you need to use a subunit, a small part of the virus protein, as to get an immune response, similar immune response. But the smaller you make it, the safer you make it, the less likely it's gonna work because it's not producing a strong immune response. So there's a real trade-off, the real trade-off there. That's the first problem. The second problem is that is that is that any Bug, any virus bacterium that varies its protein coat rapidly is very hard to vaccinate against. The ones that don't vary, we can vaccinate against. So, for example, the first, one of the first great vaccines was by Louis Pasteur against rabies in 1885, I think, 1886. Now, they'd never, they'd never seen viruses in those days, they'd never heard of viruses. So, Pasteur produced a vaccine against rabies, not ever knowing what rabies was or even what viruses were, because by chance he worked on a very conserved virus that doesn't vary much in its coat, so it's easy to protect against. And the ones that work well, the ones that we can vaccinate well against, are the ones that are conserved in their protein structure. The ones that vary, we find it really hard to vaccinate against. HIV is highly variable, that's why we can't vaccinate. Malaria is highly variable, hepatitis C is highly highly variable, meningitis B, and they're they're, they're the hard ones to do. And, and I, I don't wanna sort of attack vaccinologists, but it, it, in many ways, it's a, it's a very complicated science. And, and no one has really got a very good way of how you handle variable bugs. So, For example, for flu, you have to a new vaccine every year because it varies so much. And the kind of what we, what we, what we wanna make is a kind of a flu vaccine that's safe, but recognizes all strains of flu. And we can't do that for anything at the moment. So vaccination is a wonderful thing. If we can do it, it's fantastic, because it's the only way you can ever eradicate a disease but it's a very hard science. The easy bugs we could do years ago, the hard ones we still can't do. HIV, for example, I'm skeptical we'll ever get a vaccine for HIV. There's a person over there, I don't know.
1: Speak a little bit about the impact of climate change on these viruses.
2: Uh, So she asked about the impact of climate change. So that's a very good question. So, I mean let us let's be honest, climate change is happening, global warming is definitely there. Anyone who says it's it's not is kidding themselves. It's it's definitely happening more than we've ever had in the past. That will also undoubtedly impact on disease transmission. No doubt about that. And the simplest way of of picturing that is you can see for many pathogens, there's a correlation between climate and how common they are. Particularly for vector-borne diseases, things that pass on by mosquitoes. Ticks, things like that, and, and 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 the hotter, the wetter the conditions there are, the more you get those diseases. It's Very common. So El Nino, this kind of global phenomenon, uh, temperature phenomenon, w- weather condition, very strongly correlated with the impact of infectious diseases. Okay. Now what's going to happen? Is, it's, it's very clear. Is that so? So for example, I work a lot on a thing called dengue, the tropical virus, and dengue is basically set at the moment in the tropics. It, it has a zo- If you take a map of the world, it's kind of centered in the middle between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn because that's what's good for the mosquito, it, it lives at those temperatures and what's going to happen with global warming is that very gradually, that, those tropical zones were going to expand both ways Okay, and what's going to happen is, that, is the mosquito will then get into more temperate climates now and, and it, will, it, it will happen, it may take quite a long time to happen but many people have run models what happens to climate change and then disease transmission and you can see the, the spreading of diseases that are Passed on by by mosquitoes into more temperate areas. Okay, now now don't panic because a rich country like the U.S. it can uh, even though temperatures may rise and you you may get more mosquito transmission. If you can control the 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 the, the water abundance, okay. So dengue, for example, the mosquito breeds in old tires, water, water, uh, abandoned pots, flower pots. If you can control that, then you can control the 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 virus spreading, and rich countries can do that. Poor countries is more of a problem because they can't afford to devote resources to controlling, to picking up old tires that are lying around. So it, it, it's I, I think to, to, to my, as, as they say around here, it's a no-brainer. I think that I think that climate change will absolutely impact, will in, cause an increased burden of disease, particularly mosquito-borne infections. Right here.
0: Early 90s, I went to a seminar for um, medical establishment. It was given by the CDC, yeah. and it was about AIDS. They said that um, the best thing you could do for AIDS was um, to keep your immune system up and take B vitamins. And they were doing research on the people that have a- actually fought mm. off the virus. Mm. So, what research is there on these people, and how
2: does it happen? Okay, okay. right, yeah. So the first, the first, the first thing to say is that no one has ever cleared HIV infection, ever. So when you say so, what, so the best that you can hope for is that you can control the virus long term. So it becomes like a chronic disease, but no one's cleared it ever. No, there's no reports of that. The best evidence, I should say, is that if, if you give people dr- antiviral drugs, lots and lots of drugs, they, they, they re- you reduce the level of virus down dramatically in a few days to, to the, so you can't detect it in anyone's blood. So the drugs work amazingly well. If you then take the drugs off, within one day, it's back to where it was before. So it's always there. So it's, it's basically it's infecting lots of cells in your body. So you, first of all, you can't... No one's ever cleared it. So you can manage it. Okay, and, and the very... This, and you're, you're right. The, the, the best correlate for how long you can control your virus if you're infected is how strong your immune system is. And the people who do best have the best immune systems. Now, part of that is... you you can do I think you can probably help yourself you know vitamins may be important but I think a more important part is genetics is what you've inherited from your parents so some some, it just turns out that some genes that we have in our body are better able to fight off HIV than others by chance and if you're lucky and you've inherited from your parents those particular genes you're going to be better against HIV than people who haven't um, got these genes, so, so some of it's good luck, some of it's good breeding. Okay, I suspect it's breeding that's that's the most, the biggest contributor. Um, th- th- if you can afford it, the drugs work very well. And 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 HIV. I mean, I, I you know I'm, I'm old enough to remember when it was it was basically a, a people who had HIV infection, they thought that was the end. That's changed. And if 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 you get a good if you get a good good doctor, good therapy, it becomes a manageable disease. Although it's a lot of pills to take every day. And it's not good for you because you become anemic. There are other side effects. But um, I, I, I personally, I I, I, suspect, I, say, I suspect it's more the genes you've got than what you can do yourself to control it. There's one back there.
1: Uh, the animals that are transmitting diseases to humans, they've been around forever. And, yeah. and, and I think you've kind of alluded yeah. to some of these diseases have come and gone over yeah. the years. Any sense, and of course, you can't go back thousands of years, but... Animals have always been doing yeah. that, and humans have somehow yeah. overcome that. And and the second uh, uh, question I have, I'm just wondering, pharmaceutical companies in the industry like your research, uh, <laughs> and and are you funded at all by the, by the uh, those folks? And I'm just wondering where th- where you your research fit into their uh, uh, mission statement, I guess.
2: I'll answer your second question first. No, I have no funding from any pharmaceutical company whatsoever, and I'm not I'm not necessarily against them, but. Um, I, I think it's easier for what I do to take an independent stance on things rather than have a vested, a, a declared interest. Um, yeah, yeah, there, there are people that do what I do that work for pharmaceutical companies that do very similar things. And, um, I, I, and the, the, big, the big science point is this, that viruses evolve very quickly. Therefore, they vary a lot. Therefore, it's hard to vaccinate and hard to make drugs against. And so any drug company is interested in exactly that phenomena, and that's my research as well, okay? So your first question, and it rates the kind of title that I had. You're absolutely right. Emerging diseases have, have emerged throughout hu- human history, okay? And there are key points in human history where you can see when they've appeared. So, for example, apparently, this may sound strange, but hunter-gatherers, so people who live with, with, uh, with, in no settlements, they, they move with the food, uh, you know, they... they, 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 they they, they uh, pick up crops, they hunt. So many people in Africa live in a subsistence, subsistence way. They do not carry these viral infections. Okay? And so many people have now argued that when humans evolved farming 10,000 years or so ago, our health got worse. Okay? Because for the first time, we lived in big settlements, we didn't move, and we have animals next to us. And animals carry, carry bugs we get ill. So paradoxically, as human society kind of you know, evolved, advanced, our health went down initially because we changed our ecology. So first thing, farming—great idea for some things. In terms of disease, it's a terrible idea. Okay. And so, for example, they've, they've argued that t- tuberculosis is a basically came from cows. That's the argument. And so, and that may have, that may have coincide when we first started to farm cows. So farming was a really was a was a of the first instance where we we had big burden of diseases. Then you wind the clock forward to the Industrial Revolution, a second big emergence, because you have big cities. People move from the country into the city and brought with them their bugs into a new big populace. Bang, they explode. So that's the second point. The third time, I think, is now, the modern world. Deforestation, global travel, okay, um, big cities, war. That's allowing bugs to move again. Um, for example, you know, 50 years ago, if a virus appeared in, in, in Kinshasa, Congo, we'd have never known about it. Now, that virus could get into Manhattan and cause, it, cause an outbreak, because we can fly everywhere. SARS is a great example. I mean, SARS followed airline routes around the world. And that wouldn't have happened 50, 60 years ago. So you're absolutely right. So as it's, and again, it's about ecology, OK? It's just about how humans interact with, with, with the natural world. And as we've changed our ecology, farming, industrialization, globalization now, we are going to pick up new infections, and as, as we go in the future, it's going to happen again. It's, it, it's always part of nature, I'd say.
1: That was really a large part of my question, and <coughs> what's the next step then would be my question: Where are we going with the increasing population?
2: <laughs> well, I, I'm not OK. We're, we're, we're definitely going to get more infections. There's no doubt about that, okay? And, 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 and I can tell you where they're going to come from. they can come from. Rodents, and they come from birds, and they come from bats. And, they're, they're, and they live in monkeys and things like that, which, which look like us. They're definitely gonna happen, right? What the next one's gonna be after avian influenza, I, I wouldn't wanna guess, and I think it'd be foolish to guess. What I think we should do though, okay, to kind of get around your question, what I think we should do is to try and have m- much more active surveillance, okay? So t- to beat a disease, the world needs to work together. So every country needs to be absolutely open about disease incidents, about cases in that country. I'm not going to name any names, OK? But, you know, for example, um, <laughs> if, if you have an outbreak of avian influenza in your country, it has to go to a global surveillance network that can then move very quickly. And, we're, and we're very, Once we know there's, there's an infection, we're very good at closing things down. SARS, actually, I think was a great success story. Within three weeks of SARS being described, we had the virus and people stopped moving. And it only infected only 8,000 people, OK? Now, I say only, every year in the US, you get 36,000 people get get influenza. So you've got to put it in context. So I think we do very well. So I think the key thing is great surveillance and good global communications. Even better is is if you go out into animal species and try and survey what they've got at the moment. What bugs have they got that may in the future come into humans? And that's hard to do. It's, it's It's hard to survey Thousands of rodents and thousands of primates, but I think that's what we need to do. For example, I'll give you a quick, quick example: Ebola. Everyone knows about Ebola, terrible disease West Africa. They surveyed the CDC surveyed, surveyed almost fifty thousand animals to try and find the cause of Ebola. They never found it. Okay. They, it, once there was an outbreak in a, in a cotton mill in, in southern Sudan, they closed the mill off, looked at every animal in that mill, and they couldn't find, they couldn't find the virus. Okay, we, by the way, we now know what it is, it's basically bats. So bats, are the, as I said, bats are now the, the reservoir of Ebola, about that, so that's where it comes from. They, they didn't find it. So I think we should survey animal species, of what they may, what they have that may get into humans. It's just hard to do, Costs a lot of money, and you may not find it. But I think that's, that's the ultimate, the kind of thing we should be doing. There's a question over here. Oh yeah, sorry.
0: Well, I remember sitting in an undergraduate microbiology class about 1970 and my professor saying in 20 years antibiotics are not going to work anymore.
2: Smart person. Uh,
0: yeah he was. Uh, obviously it's taken a little longer than that but I'm wondering how long we think these antivirals we have now are going to work.
2: <coughs> yeah, very, yeah okay it's, that's a very good question uh, or comment. Um, <laughs> so, I didn't talk about bi- okay. I didn't talk about bacteria. Remember, antibiotics only work for bacteria, not for viruses. Okay, um, the first antibiotic was was produced in 1944, penicillin. Okay, um, within one year, they had a resistance to penicillin. Okay, now they knew that at the time, but they thought it would take much longer for it to get to become a big problem. It's now a disaster. TB. I showed that the, this TB slide at the start. TB has come back for two reasons. Mm. One, many strains of TB now are drug resistant. It's scary. Multiple drug resistant. Two is HIV. HIV reduces your immune, your immune um, response. You can't control yourself against infection. You get TB. So HIV and TB kind of hang out together, and, that, and that's so TB has got worse because of HIV and resistance. So it's it's, it's a real problem. So drugs, so antibiotic resistance is a is a global problem of of terrible con, uh, um, effect. And what we need to do is make synthetic antibiotics. But that is hard to do, it's really hard to do. Most antibiotics are, are, are natural products. You know, they're fungi from nature. But if they're from nature, it's a good chance that something out there in nature is already resistant to it, okay? So what we need to do is make synthetic ones, but that's really hard to do. Antivirals are similar. So HIV, if you give, if you give so the first drug that was used for HIV was called, was called AZT, zidovudine. okay? It was an old, old drug that was lying around. Now when they first gave people a Z. So I said A Z T. A Z T. be English. A Z T. Um, it was like a wonder drug. It worked phenomenally, and they had a drug trial, and they stopped the trial because it looked so good. They thought this is this is it's amazing. Within six weeks or so, the virus had evolved resistance, and every patient you give that drug to, they evolve resistance in a, in weeks. So now, then they had two drugs, and the virus evolved resistance in in months. Now they give three or four drugs, and that works much better, because the virus can't do everything. It can't juggle these balls in the air at the same time. But sometimes it also evolves resistance. The, the, the really critical question is, is, is this. Are these resistant mutations, the one that the virus uses to, to, to evade the drugs, are they passed on in the population? If they are, we're in big trouble for antivirus, because they're not gonna work. Because somebody's in Southern Africa, they're, being, you know, they're you're passing on resistant strains, as, we, as we've done in TB, streptococcus, pneumonia, whatever. So that's why I'm not a great, I mean, drugs are fantastic. If you're HIV and you're on drugs, it's been, it's a wonderful thing, it's really a fantastic thing. They're not a long-term solution because they they don't cure, they just reduce. And we will evolve resistance. So ultimately we want, ultimately you want to prevent transmission, okay? Either by vaccination or education of people, avoiding people who are infected. That's harder to do. So I think I think it's inevitable.
0: Um, you haven't mentioned mad cow disease. Yeah. Um, I was wondering where that falls into your research, if at all. And also, um, on a different note, um, as far as sometimes pharmaceuticals seem to have worse side effects than yeah. the disease you're treating, I was wondering about any comments
2: you had about that. Okay, so, okay, being British, I, I was trying to avoid mad cow disease. Um, we have kind of National guilt over it. Um, so BSC, it, it has exactly the same story. It's a zoonotic infection. It comes from another animal. Okay. So the story, very briefly, is that is that a, a lot of animals, ruminant animals, cows and sheep, carry a thing, a very odd thing called a prion. We all so we all have prions. They're proteins in the brain. And very strangely, sheep had a disease called scrapie, which if you're a vet, you may know about scrapie. And scrapie is caused by this prion, this brain protein misfunctioning. In the UK in the 1980s, they decided to feed, sorry, it's a bit, bit disgusting, they decided to feed sheep cows, br- sorry, feed cows sheep's brain. Okay? So they gave them food that was offal, okay? and that offal contained brain of sheep. Now, uh, Cows, if, as far as I know, are vegetarian, so I don't know why they fed them this, but there you go, they did, for economic reasons. So that, that mutated prion that caused in sheep then passed into cows. OK, because we, we fed the sheep to the cows, very strangely. Then humans ate hamburgers, whatever, in the UK. We, we, ate, the, we ate the cow. And we think a million, peop- a million infected carcasses were eaten in the UK over about a six year period. I'm sure I ate lots of infected cow, OK? Then some of those, those prions went from cows to humans to call a thing called creutzfeldt jakob disease, the human form of mad cow disease. So again, it's exactly what I say, it's, it's a zoonotic infection. It's not a virus, it's caused by mutated protein, but it's exactly the same process animals, reservoir into humans because of ecology. And the, ecology, the change of ecology this time is that we, we fed, we changed our farming practices and fed uh, sheep offal to cows. Same process. Luckily for BSE, I, I don't work on BSE, but luckily it's one of those, um, those, those infections that hasn't really got going, it's kind of burnt itself out. So it's a terrible disease, but I think, at, if I remember rightly, the cumulative total of cases in humans in the UK of crosseyedac disease is about 150, 160. and it's going down. So it, it never took off. It they, they, they were, when it first happened, they, they were predicting millions. They didn't really know how fast it was going to grow. It turns out it's kind of it's grown and, and faded right out. So it's no longer no longer a problem. But it's the same phenomenon. That same phenomenon. Uh, As for as for drugs, I mean, ever since people knew about infectious diseases, there's been been a a desire to get a magic bullet. Okay, it's a very old phrase from the start of the nineteenth, twentieth century, to control an infection that's specific for that disease. And it can't. It's very hard to do, and it's it's just like chemotherapy in any system. The treatment's often worse than the, the, the disease, because you're you're knocking down your immune response. You're 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 knocking down cells. There's little you can do. So the HIV drugs you, you, um, you give people are not very nice. You've become anemic, you, you, you get weakened immune system, you get other infections. But they do, they do actually work. So I, I think there's nothing we can do. I mean, again, that's why, I'm, I'm, I, if possible, you try and vaccinate, because vaccines are much safer, and they prevent transmission. That's the critical thing, and that's what you need to eradicate, it, is you need to prevent transmission. Drugs don't do that, they kind of just reduce, reduce the amount of, in, your, in your body.
1: Are there any other uh, diseases known to be caused by prions? And isn't it unusual uh, to have something transmitted by eating?
2: Yeah, so prions are very odd, and I still can't get my head around them, quite honestly. Um, So so there's an an older human disease called Kuru, which they found in, um, which is associated, I think it was with cannibalism in the the Pacific Islands. That's a a CJD. These are all very unusual Brain-associated disease. In, in actually, it's very—it's not that common to have a brain infection. It's quite hard to do because it's hard to infect brain cells. Most pathogens like, like blood, okay, or respiratory tissue, because it's easy to get in. Brain's hard to get in. So there are other ones, um, but they're in, they're unusual. And, and and the good the good news about BSC and CJD is that is that a it's it's going down in Britain. And also, it turns out that most people, even if they eat the infected meat, are not susceptible to the infection there are basically genetic traits in people that determine whether they're gonna get a prion infection or not. And most people have a gene combination that means they're they're not gonna get infected. So it's actually very rare to get that, which is the good news.
1: If you think about the flu and all the different strains of flu, and the CDC tries to decide who needs to get vaccinated and who doesn't need to get vaccinated, would you personally, cho- do you
2: choose vaccines or do you choose not to be vaccinated <laughs> and risk getting the disease? You said at the beginning, getting the disease itself is the best yeah, resistance. Yeah, OK. Then. <laughs> oh, crikey. <laughs> That's put me on the spot. Um, you should get vaccinated. So. Does it cross and OK, uh, let, me t- let me tell you this. It's a very good question. So avian flu, H5N1, the vaccine's not going to help you, right? So don't, don't, it's because it's a different, it's a completely different strain of virus. That any, va- any vaccine you get, they're, they're trying to make a vaccine for H5N1. The ones we've got at the moment don't work. So that isn't gonna help you against that one. <coughs> Seasonal flu, the flu you kind of get every season. Most people say they've got the flu, they've never had the flu. About 10 years ago, I, I, had, I had the real flu. It's the worst disease I've ever had in my entire life. I was out for three weeks, absolutely terrifying. Now I was a lot younger then, a bit healthier, and I, and I, and I survived it. But you can imagine if you're older, if you're if you're weaker, if you're very young, that's gonna that could really affect your your chance of surviving. The other thing that and what flu usually does to you is it weakens your immune system. You get a bacterial infection. So people die of the flu actually die of bacterial infections because they they got a weakened immune system that the flu has done to them. So I would say over a certain age age um, limit, and I'm getting to that myself now. I would say it's a, I, I would I would recommend getting the vaccine. The vaccines usually work pretty well. Sometimes they don't. Um, so, it's a, good thing, it's a good thing to do. What, but what we really want for flu is not to vaccinate every season. What we really want is a vaccine that, that will be protective against every strain of flu out there, including H5N1, the one in birds right now. And we're not there yet because it's very, very, very hard to do. No one's ever cracked this. So, I'll work on it again, just change the subject quickly. Dengue is in the virus I work on. There are four strains of dengue that are very different in their kind of protein structure. You can't make a a vaccine against all four. It just doesn't work. And they've tried many, many times to try and do this, and they can't do it at the moment. And that's a real problem. And it sounds like a simple thing to do. You not want to put all four strains in a vaccine and just give people that. It doesn't work like that. So vaccination's a great thing, but it's just hard to do. But if if there are, but the vaccines that are there right now, you should take them, because they are very, very good. There's one back there.
1: What do you see as the effects of immigration into the United States impacting um, recent um, outbreaks of some diseases, especially in uh, the southern United States?
2: Okay, it's. I, I'm gonna be very careful what I say. It, there is, no one is to blame for any infectious disease. Okay, for many, for HIV in the many early early days, people pointed fingers at people, and said that's you know you ought to blame for that that they, they come from particular populations no these these are just things of nature okay it just happens and and it ha- they come from tropical countries because they have more biological diversity there that's why they come from africa or asia or south america <laughs> that being said it, it it's all it's also the also the case that the movement of people has always been associated with the transmission of infectious diseases And I I don't don't want to comment on any particular populations, but that's always been the case, okay? And it must be the case. Um, And that's just the way we live today. And and so uh, the solution, though, I think is, I I don't think the solution is putting up boundaries to to do that. I think the solution is trying to develop good scientific solutions, better vaccination, education. I think that's that's the best solution to the problem.
0: Do we have any more questions? Time
1: for one more. Um, well, I wonder uh, whether there are viruses which are not harmful to people that we have in our bodies. Yeah. And roughly, if that's the case, what's the percentage of that? Is it 50 50 or do we have more unharmful than harmful?
2: That is a really, really good question. Um, it's very hard to discover and a virus that's not associated with disease. How do you know it's not, that? how do you know it's there? It's undoubtedly, we, we definitely carry viruses that do not cause diseases, okay? And there, there are a couple that are very common, there's one called JCV, okay, JC virus, that probably infects 80% of the world's population. That, you, many people in this room will have it, and it very, very rarely causes disease. The other one is human papillomavirus that we now know causes cervical cancer. That's very, very common, okay? Um, and many, many, and, it's, and it's, it's no, there's no shame in carrying it. Just, it happens to be there. And most people have absolutely no disease at all with that. If you're unlucky and you're a human set and you have your genes, your own genes in the wrong configuration, you can get cervical cancer from that. There, and then there are others. So as your question, how many, what's the percentage of, of disease ones and non disease ones? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. Honestly, I have no idea at all, and I and because we, we it's hard to get things that the way, the way the way you find a virus is normally you look for a transmission chain. X is infected. X infected Y. What? Let's look at these people. What's wrong with them? And you find a virus. We don't. It's very hard to screen for something. You know, we not we not you know what you're looking for. So, I don't know how to answer the question. There must be more out there, but we just don't know about them.
1: Just a, <coughs> not a question. Sort of a follow up on this question over here that I've read recently on the internet so I don't know if this is true or not, but one of the puzzles of uh, genetics is that we have these enormous stretches of genes in our our cells that there's no
2: known purpose for them.
1: And so some people are suggesting
0: that those are basically viruses that have incorporated themselves into our gene structure. Uh, and then, just another co- sort of a follow up comment about the uh,
2: program. There's an excellent book called Plagues and Peoples. No, well, uh, yeah. Called uh, by William McNeil The, the Effect of yeah. Disease on Human History. Yeah. Excellent book. Yeah, Re- 19... Published about 20 years Wonderful. ago. Wonderful. Yeah, the first person to really. Um, yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. So the human g- genome, very quickly, is, is full of mainly what we thought was junk. So the human genome, probably 10%, less than 10% encodes anything useful. The rest of it's just what is it doing there? A large chunk of that is virus or dead virus. No doubt about that. So HIV is a retrovirus, and it's, it's very closely related to, to large parts of your genome. So what's happened over millions of years is these things have, have continually jumped from wild animals into your genome and become inherited vertically. It's continually happened. They're definitely, they're definitely related to viruses. Occasionally, it goes the other way, and a bit of genome becomes an infectious virus okay, and, and, and there's a big worry now, if you've you ever heard of xenotransplantation, okay, so one of the big things now is hepatitis C virus, massive, massive problem, 170 million people get hepatitis C, now they, a large chunk of those are going to get very serious liver disease in 20 years' time, so they need a new liver, okay, and, and the rest of it, you need 90 million livers, liver transplants, but where do you get 90 million livers from? It's just, you know, it's, it's just hard to do it, so the idea is we're going to use pig livers, because pigs have about the same size as humans, kind of similar livers. Let's use their livers to to, to people whose livers are are collapsing. The problem is that those pig cells, even even if you screen them for everything you know, every disease you know, their genes contain these old viruses that may then get reactivated. And that's happened in pigs. So there's a real debate now. Should we use these other organs for other animals? Even if we screen them for every disease we, we can think of, are we really getting everyone? And I don't think we are. I think, I think that, this, this, that large parts of our genome are viruses that look dead now, but they could be reactivated.